The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. As we get started, I actually wanted to just say that, Sarah, you and I had a chance to talk ahead of time, and there were so many important things that you said. I really am going to do my best to get to them, and I think they're going to be really helpful. Do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about where you were and what your role was in healthcare in the beginning of the pandemic? Yes, I am an emergency room nurse. I have been in the emergency for the last six years out of my 12 years as a nurse. I was in Washington, D.C. when the pandemic first hit, and I did go down to Miami to work on a COVID crisis contract also. During the pandemic? During the pandemic. But when COVID started rolling in, you were in D.C., and and how? what was your experience of, you know, Uh, It wasn't here, and then it was here. I mean, uh, what was your experience of that? I always say as emergency room nurses, we feel like we handle the chaos well. We thrive in it. So knowing a lot of people were getting sick, that things were definitely different, started hitting us when so many people started getting sick. And we didn't quite understand everything that went along with the disease process, with the virus. And when it was so many different types of people and not just elderly people, people with comorbidities, it was everybody. And it started to hit all of us that, you know, this wasn't just like flu season. This wasn't just like a time period where everyone's getting colds. And it was definitely something different. So it was something that kind of shocked us because as emergency room nurses, we are trained to handle any and everything that walks in the door. And very quickly, we started to realize that with the lack of understanding, it was a lot different than just a bad flu season. Wow, that's interesting. Because I remember thinking, well, you know, is it going to happen here? 
So there was even a period where you were, you all were wondering, I wonder if it's just a bad flu season for a bit. Mm -hmm. And then it changed. How did it dawn on you that this wasn't, you know, a bad flu season? The necessity for PPE, the lack of understanding when we just started seeing so many people so sick and so many people dying. You know, we were getting younger people coming in with cardiac issues, with strokes, you know, conditions that we wouldn't normally see in a younger age group or an age group that didn't have a lot of comorbidities. You would have somebody who was in a couple of days ago diagnosed with COVID and then came back two days later as a full-blown cardiac arrest and you're running a code on them. And you say, oh, I remember them. I was here two days ago. They were just diagnosed with COVID, not very sick other than COVID, you know, no other health conditions, but here they are, you know, younger person and you're running a full-blown code and now they're dead. And I remember in talking with you, this idea of, uh, I mean, as an emergency room, you know, nurse, you're not unused to death, but, but the amount of it, one of the first people I think you, you experienced, uh, wasn't he a cafeteria worker? What's that story? That was actually down when I was in Miami and it was actually, that was the case that really broke me. <laughs> and I feel that as emergency room nurses, we or staff, you know, including including of all the emergency room staff, not just the nurses, but all of us working side by side. We're used to death. We are, it's something that we do. We save lives. They come in as trauma. They come in as cardiac arrest. They come in as a stroke, whatever it was. But during the pandemic, it was so often that we were seeing someone with these issues related to COVID and dying. And then you get to a certain point where you become numb. And as emergency room nurses and staff, we learn to compartmentalize everything because we deal with trauma on a daily basis. We see very traumatic things and that's how we live our lives. But the case that broke me was when I was down in Miami because this man went from being there to not. And it was very difficult because we were doing everything we could to save him. And in his last moments, before we ended up having to run a code on him. I held his face and I told him to look at me and to breathe with me because he's saying he couldn't breathe. And I'm realizing in my mind that my eyes will be the last eyes that he ever sees. And I say eyes because literally gowned from head to toe, two masks, scrub cap, goggles, face shield, gown, gloves, all the things for what we wear now, for PPE, for every COVID patient. And all you can see of me is my eyes. And it's almost a disconnect for patients, unfortunately, because we're just gowned aliens to them. But when I made that connection with my eyes staring at his eyes, it was a very heartbreaking moment because he did see that in me. And then I saw the life leave his eyes and we did end up running the code on him and he, we were unable to get him back. And that was the case that just got me. <laughs> so he responded. So in that, I mean, wow. I mean, you know, just to think in slow motion, right? Like, um, in, you know, how, how you judge those last moments of, you know, when somebody's really going downhill and, and reading the scene and, you know, feeling compelled as a healer to connect with him. And then literally saying, you know, using your voice and, and saying, please look at me. 
and look at my eyes and, and I'll breathe with you. So, and he responded to that. For a moment, yes. Before we get to the point where you say the word, it broke me because that's really important. Are you glad you did that? I am. And with as difficult as it is handling things within our job set that we do every day in the emergency room, knowing that even if you've touched one person's life, you realize that that makes it all worth it. There's so much anger sometimes in the emergency room, unfortunately. You know, we're seeing people at their worst. You know, they're sick, they're hurting, they're dying. And having that little moment of humanity, that little moment of connection with somebody, and even just letting them know that they're not alone when they die, that's in the end what makes it all worth it. You know, one of the things that's so amazing about it is this wasn't your family member. I imagine you didn't know this person, but you're the last person with him. And you just, out of some deep instinctive place, connect with him. And, you know, I guess we've heard maybe on the news the, the story about, um, you know, families aren't aren't able to be there at the bedside or haven't been when people are uh, pass away. Did he have family who weren't able to be there? Yes, that's correct. No visitors were allowed within the emergency room. Everyone was by themselves. And obviously everyone talks to their families over the phone. And he never, unfortunately, was able to say goodbye. Did the family ever learn about that moment that you had created with him? No, I don't believe so. One of the charge nurses was the one who made the phone call to the wife to let her know. Another, when we talked, word that you used, I think, was something about the absurdity of, of things with the pandemic. And there's something, I don't know if it's absurd, but there, there's something compelling about how many of these moments have happened and people don't know about it, you know? There's a um, lot of those moments, yes. Really? You can speak to that firsthand. Okay, so what, when you said it broke me, that's a, that's a biggie. What do you mean by that? I feel that after a certain point, it's just too much. It's like you're caring for others so much and you're giving your, you know, so much of yourself to other people and you're waking up every day, you're going through 12, 13 hours of helping people that sometimes there's just one, one person that it's just, you just feel it's too much. And at work, we don't cry, or we didn't used to. I feel during the pandemic, I've seen more of my emergency friends cry than I've ever expected to. But, you know, at work, we can't cry. We can't fall apart. We have other patients. In that moment, we still have three or four other patients waiting for us to take care of them. So you'd have no time to cry over the death of someone that you just lost. So I remember going home, and I did not cry still. And then it was the next day that I had off and mm -hmm. I just was laying in my bed when I woke up and I just, it hit me like a wave and I just cried and cried and cried. And I feel like I hadn't cried like that in a while. I have cried a lot during the pandemic, but I have not cried like that in a while. And I feel it had just reached a tipping point for me that I just had to mourn the loss of all of those that I was the last person they saw before they die. I was the last person they saw before being intubated because that also is a very scary thing for many people. You know, where we medicate them prior to intubation, but still they're struggling to breathe and it's us, that's all it is. It's us and then we're putting them to sleep so that we can intubate them. And 
in that moment, we're the ones who are telling them that, you know, we're going to do everything that we can. And then for them, they, you know, go to sleep and are intubated. So even in those moments, very scary moments for many people. And it's like, we are the last people that they see. And we are the, you know, face of comfort in that slight moment. So it's just really helpful, I think, for people to hear the details about what was going on with you and it's come out and in, in when other people have been on the podcast, when they reach a limit, you know, and I'm going to say if I have this right, because it sounded like what you were saying was you were giving, you were giving, I mean, you know, the scene with even just that one patient where you're holding his face and asking him to look in your eyes. I mean, that's giving a lot and you're giving a lot at work and there's there's not an unlimited supply of what you can give there's some limit but it's hard to know that limit and i think you know to your what you said we don't you know emergency room we don't cry you know we don't we we need to keep up a strong exterior so that works against being able to know if you've reached a limit you know but something about that was really it seemed like it clicked for you you're like that's a limit and then you let it out. And did it help to let it out? It did. Even though I didn't obviously know him very well, it was still like telling myself that it's okay that I knew this man for a short period of time and he was gone. And it's okay to say goodbye to him. And, you know, sometimes it's so many people in the emergency room <laughs> that you don't have that moment. And so, you're just on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. Oh, they died. Okay, keep it moving. There are a waiting room full of people. We have 30 in the waiting room. We have everyone stacked in hallway beds. You know, keep it moving, keep it moving, keep it moving. And I just was finally able to allow myself that moment to grieve for him, for all the other people, you know, that we lost and all of those that I've been involved in where I don't know the outcome you know, shift change, or I was able to get them up to ICU or whatever the reasoning, you know, those people that we share that moment in their lives. And Mm -hmm. it is just very important that we recognize that that still is what makes us human. And all, all of that, even just now is still a fairly private thing to you. Did you end up connecting with your colleagues about the grieving and the frustration and the limits? Definitely have a great support system with my friends who also work in the emergency room and not just where I was at that moment, because I did have a couple of great friends down there with me. But, you know, my friends up here in the D.C. area and my friends across the country, as a travel nurse, I've made friends from all over. (laughs) And knowing that someone understands you is definitely the people that you turn to in these moments, because it is difficult to share with family members or friends that are not in the medical field, because it ends up being too depressing. You know, it's, it is depressing in general, but it's something that they're not used to and they're not trained to handle. So they are great and amazing and say, you know, if you need anything, if you need to talk, let me know. But then when you start talking about all the bad things that you see, it's a little harder for them to deal with also. So definitely my support with all my friends within the ERs that I've worked in is necessary. That's excellent. And speaking of friends, I remember being really struck by a story you told about a a friend of yours who I think volunteered to do some work on a reservation. Is that right? Yes, I'm uh, from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I had a friend who I used to work with. She was a respiratory therapist. And she was actually Native American. And when 
the pandemic hit the reservation so hard. The Navajo Nation was hit so hard and it was just devastating. And she did go out to work back on the reservation and ended up passing away because of COVID. And um, to hear it was very difficult just because it's someone you know personally. We see lives lost all the time, but when it's someone that you know, it makes it even harder to know that they're alongside fighting against this thing and they lost their life to it. And I, I also, for some reason, it makes me think of, I know it's important to you where you come from, in Mexico, being a Latina, and so identity and, and sort of devotion to history and, and what, you know, you can imagine. I don't know if she told you what compelled her to do what was a really a very selfless thing for her to do, to give. But what a compelling story. How's her family doing, do you know? I'm unsure. I have not spoken really with her family, but I'm sure they are still grieving her loss because every person who's lost someone in this pandemic, you know, has to face that reality that that person's gone. And in such a way that I don't think anybody's fully processed because it's been, here it is, you know, January and this thing hit us pretty hard since March. So it hasn't even been a full year since it's been so bad. And it's just so many thousands of lives have been lost. And it I don't know if anybody's fully grieved. I don't know if anybody's fully processed that, you know, how many people are actually gone because of this thing. Right. That's a really good point. I mean, what are we, as we're talking, 340, 350,000 mm-hmm. lives have been lost. And in addition to the grieving that hasn't happened, I mean, I wanted to talk about that story, but I almost feel as though her story deserves more time. You know, it's own <laughs> podcast, you know, how many stories haven't been, you know, how many people know about what she did and the sacrifice that she made. And it just fits in all that, that, that you have uh, seen. So thanks for sharing that. Thinking about friends as well. I mean, I remember you saying we've been in this so long you're starting to see people losing their intensity for staying safe and using masks or what whatnot. And what what's that been like for you? I find it very, very difficult just doing what we do as frontline healthcare workers. I find it difficult seeing people out without masks. And I I have even my own friends, I see them on social media. I have seen them, you know, out in clubs and no masks. And I call it smoking community hookah, you know, at restaurants where everybody uses the same um, hookah setups. And it's just really a hookah. And what, and and I think you had to (laughs) tell me what a hookah was. What can you describe it? Um, Yes. It's, it's a glass container pretty much that helps create smoke and then you smoke from it. And so usually setups for hookah have like one to two cords. Sometimes some of them have more than that. And what people just do is tend to change the mouthpieces. And so you'll be at like a a bar restaurant that does hookah and then you change your mouthpiece so that you're not putting your mouth on the same piece that everybody next to you is. And you just pass it around. You know, we're in a global pandemic right now. And I'm just like mind blown that people are still out sharing the same hookahs and just, you know, changing their mouthpiece. (laughs) Like that's gonna, you know, prevent anything, the spread of anything. Whereas when you're, you know, when you're blowing it's creating smoke. You're still passing, you know, the same air through the same hookah. It's just mind blowing that people are out and about doing that while we're in this. And it's, 
it's just difficult because then you start to question sometimes why you're even doing this some days. It's just like the community not caring, the lack of caring in the community some days can just be so upsetting that you just start questioning everything. Yeah, it's an amazing story, almost almost like from a movie or something. I mean, that <laughs> you almost wouldn't believe that degree of being at risk for spreading the virus. Mm-hmm. And how, how does it affect you? I mean, it, you know, because you're and you're still going into work every day, you every know, day. trying yeah. to save people's lives who are getting sick. And how do you make sense of it? What do you and these are friends, you said. What do you Yes, do with people that? I know on my social media, you know, I know them personally and I see them in clubs and bars and, you know, out and about, no mask type of thing. It's, I feel like people don't realize with all the people who don't believe in masks or just don't feel like wearing masks or are tired of wearing masks, whatever the reasoning is, I feel that they don't realize that their actions will end up bringing them to us when they get sick. So even though they have this idea that they're tired of it and they want to get back to normal life or they just don't believe in masks in general, in the end, if they get sick enough, they will end up coming to see us. So they're still utilizing those of us who have been working this whole time and they can say, oh, I don't care. I'm going to, you know, a huge family party or huge friend gathering or whatever it is. In the end, they're still using us when they get sick and asking us to make them better. And so now you're exposing us, you're exposing everybody in the emergency room, you're exposing everybody that you come in contact with type of thing because you're making your own personal choices, yes, but your personal choices end up being part of our everyday life. And now here we are having to pick up the pieces. You know, and because I remember you saying, you know, you're an emergency room nurse and you're used to death, but the, the amount of it, right? And I think you said you're an emergency room nurse, you're used to absurdity you know you're used to people doing uh, dumb things you know Uh, i think you said something like uh you know why do you come in blowing a hole in your leg with a gun or something like that right yeah Um, all the time (laughs) you're not unused to absurdity is it just kind of like with the death the level of it the amount of it i believe so i think it's after a while when you're seeing death or when you're seeing the intubations that we have to do just to help you breathe It's not always your old grandmas and grandpas that you get that have, you know, 70 diagnosis and 100 pills that they're on at home where everything, you know, is wrong with them. And it's it's these people who don't even have diabetes or hypertension sometimes, which, you know, a lot of the population that'll be like have diabetes, hypertension, and that'll be it for them. But some people don't even have those and they're coming in and they can't breathe. You know, and it's just the amount of how many people across so many age groups and comorbidities and genders, it's this virus is just not particular. It is not picky. And it's just the uh, level of how many different sets of people you see, it gets to you because you're trying to find an answer. You're trying to say, oh, well, if they meet this criteria, then we'll probably have to do this. And with so many times, it's like sometimes the elder ones with all the comorbidities may be the ones who actually don't need to be intubated, whereas the younger ones with nothing end up being the ones that are intubated because their oxygen is 40% on room air. You know, 
Sarah, this gets me back to when you were talking about your eyes being the last thing that, that a lot of people are seeing, but also my wish would be that people could see things through your eyes. You know, I don't know if you saw recently on, there was a newscaster woman, she broke down because she was reporting on all of the death and suffering that she was, because she was reporting from the hospital. So she was seeing things with her eyes. And, you know, you think about, people at the community hookah or people out there not worried about COVID, you have to imagine their eyes haven't seen it, you know, if right. only they could see it through your eyes. And actually, in a way, that's what you're doing, I think, by talking with us. I wanted to just, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about therapy. Mm -hmm. you know, so I'm a psychiatrist and I wish we did a better job explaining what counseling is and that sort of thing. And am I right that you, you had had an experience in, in therapy uh, even before COVID? And did you find that helpful? Oh, it was amazing. It was definitely something that was necessary. I'm still working on trying to get a therapist now that I'm settling down here. But beforehand, when I was in therapy, it was definitely something that I found to be very helpful because it was a third party. So someone who doesn't know you personally who's able to listen to you and able to reiterate what you said, but help you realize what you said also. So saying it back to you in a different way and making you realize, oh, I did say that. Oh, you know, things you didn't, you may have just been talking, 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 and all of a sudden they're helping you make sense of what you just said. And it is that third party being able to, from their understanding, say, oh, I think this is what you're telling me. And then say it in a way that you realize that there is meaning to what you just said. And there's a reason that maybe one thing feeds into another because of what you had just said. And sometimes when you talk just to your friends, they're too closely involved in things. So that therapy is that person who's kind of the outside looking in and able to help you realize things that you may never have realized. Okay, that was amazing. <laughs> and to use your word... I really hope people hear what you just, like a lot of people hear, listen to what you just said. I love it when people say therapy was amazing because it actually is amazing. I mean, if, if you if you find a therapist or counselor that you click with, it is it can be extraordinarily helpful. So that was cool. And then I want to just break this down a little bit because you really broke it down. So you had an awareness that in counseling, you know, you say things to your therapist and then they listen to what you say and then what did you say then they 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 sort of help you think about what well, did you really mean this when you mm -hmm. said it or it sounds like you know you're trying to say this but maybe there's something else going on was it Correct. kind of like that it's a realization that there is some meaning in what you say when you don't even realize that there is so for you to be able to articulate that because when we like I'm talking with you with my words mm -hmm. you're talking to me with your words we kind of are attached to our <laughs> what yeah. we say right that's one of the things that's not easy about therapy is when somebody says something back to you first of all you got to trust them and then you have to be willing to like think about hmm maybe I I said this but I really meant that I guess you could even call that like insight is that something that you had before therapy or you think you you got better in therapy 
I actually don't know. <laughs> it's a weird question. I, it's kind of an inside baseball psychiatrist kind of question. I, I, you can tell I'm really glad that you're talking about it. But it does make me wonder always like what we could be doing better, like, right. you know, in treatment to make it easier for people to have the reaction that you had. You were able to step back and say, you know, maybe I am meaning something mm -hmm. different than what I'm saying. But I, I just want to really underline that. And thank you for, for saying that. Let me just ask you, is there anything else you wanted to say about counseling and, and reaching out? Did other colleagues reach out? Did some of them not reach out? I actually have told a lot of my friends about this podcast and how Kevin Lynch is so willing to help with, you know, assisting in finding a therapist and all of that. And actually quite a few of my friends were like, can he help me also? <laughs> Right. I'm actually I'm actually more surprised that so many of my friends are actually very interested in therapy, but also don't know the avenue to go through to get there. And so many of them are like, well, let me know if there's a way that I can get a therapist, too, because I feel like these times it made more of my colleagues realize that maybe we do need a little bit extra help. That's really cool in, in two ways. One is that you make the point that when one person in a group has a really good experience with counseling and getting mm -hmm. help, other people do. Other people right. then go out. That's really important. So it's great to speak about it. The other thing you, you said is that, you know, there's a little bit of finding a therapist, right? Like right. how do you find one and who do you know and how do you find out whether this person is A, good and B, going to be a fit. And, and actually, you were just saying you're looking for one now. Back with this other person be, before, what, did you just get lucky? Did you find that person? How did you match up with that person? Definitely got lucky. No, <laughs> I believe, oh, and I don't remember. I think it's like psychology today or something. Uh -huh. It's yeah. like a, it's a list of, yeah. you know, it's kind of like their bios. And then it also specifies what they um, specialize in. Yeah. So some of them specialize like in family therapy or pediatric counseling, you know, and obviously if that doesn't suit what you're looking for, then you're not going to really reach out to them. But I was able to come across the therapist that I ended up working with for a little while. And she was a great fit from the start, which was awesome because I ended up, she's the first one I talked to <laughs> just using Google and then getting to, you know, the psychology today or whatever the website was. So, um, A, you know, there are a lot of places that you can look for therapists. Uh, psychology today is a really good one. And, but you did actually select, you looked at, well, what is this right. person's bio? Am I going to connect with them? And what are their, what's their specialty? So that's, that's actually a really good tip for people, you know? And the other tip is that, you know, if it's not working with one therapist, it may not be the right fit. And sometimes people don't, for some reason, they don't think about, well, I'll just go try another therapist. Mm -hmm. I, I think about it sometimes if you have a side effect to a medicine, you know, right. just try another medicine. So thank you for that. That was really, really helpful. One other question that I had for you, because I'm a leader in healthcare, and then leaders are listening to this, you know, is there anything, and being a traveler, you know, you can be in different systems. Is there anything that you learned about leaders during this or watching leaders and, and how, what was your experience of that? I feel like there's different roles that some, you know, some of the roles were being met and some of them may not have been as much. And Leadership I do- roles? Yes, correct. Sorry about that. Leadership mm -hmm. roles. I do know that the charge nurses that I have worked with through all of this are amazing. Mm -hmm. And especially here in DC, the, the charge nurses we had were right there alongside us. When a trauma came in, when 
cardiac arrest came in, when a respiratory distress and intubation, you know, whatever it was, they were there with us. They were running us supplies. They were making sure that another nurse was helping watch our other patients. And, you know, they were in the thick of it with us. Whereas other leadership may, you know, more office type jobs were at home quarantining Mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we would go without all the proper PPE. And I just know that there, you know, there's been a shortage and the type of masks Mm -hmm. I wear, I have difficulty getting them. So I reuse my masks. And it's just sometimes when people are not present, it's a little bit harder to feel like they're listening or even know what you're going through. So directly, I didn't have any, you know, good versus bad experience necessarily with leadership. But I do know that the ones that I know I really utilized were those charge nurses that were alongside me, whereas other people, you know, in management and leadership may not have been, they weren't present. So it's not so much like I felt like that we were being heard in some aspects. Well, I mean, as a leader, I hear a lot in what you said in terms of learning and take home points and see if I have this right. One is the importance of of listening. Mm-hmm. The other is the importance of being in it with people. And I think you said presence, your presence as a leader. I mean, of course, you can say lots of different systems, lots of different roles. Right, right, Leaders right. can't be everywhere every every minute. But it's a really important factor, you know, whether you are present when you can be present or not. And, and actually, I think you even tied that together. If I'm right, you, you, it seemed like you were saying if you've got leader A, leader B, pretty much, let's say everything's the same. Leader A is more present. Leader B is not. When they speak, it feels like you're listened to more by leader A because they were there. Is that right? Yes. You know, they're not just emails. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, they're, they're there. Oh, we're having a terrible night and here they are, you know, they're helping us. One night we had, actually, it was just a couple months ago, was so terrible. There was Mm. so many people in the waiting room. We had ambulances lined up along the back wall, you know, just in the ambulance bay, people just spilling out of the triage area. We had chairs lined up in front of the trauma bays, and I was just rigging some IV bags to hang off of little dividers with some, I used tourniquets to hang them. (laughs) We had two uh, of our higher up doctors who came in. They're usually day shift. I work night shift. Mm -hmm. And our nursing manager, they came in and they were helping transport patients, like COVID patients too, and just helping move them to the beds on the floor. And we were shocked. You know, we were like, what, what is going on? You know, I just saw, you know, Dr. So-and-so transporting a patient for me, (laughs) you know, and it, it was that moment when you realize them being present and them assisting in what you're doing to help make what you're doing easier, getting the space, moving the patients, you know, all of that assisting in that, that was like mind blowing. It was the level of help that it accomplished that like we were able to get everything under control because there were a few extra people who ended up being higher up leadership that showed up and were like, oh, okay, you're having a bad night. We're here for you. We're going to show up. We're going to help move patients the nurse manager was like vitalizing people (laughs) in the hallways, you know, who are not on monitors. 
that moment makes you realize all the past moments where other times when management may not have been around and you know, not everybody in management leadership positions are clinical, so they can't you know, be vitalizing your patients. But when there is something to be done, when there is a bad night, when there is help needed and they show up and they do, even if it's something so simple as helping transport a patient, the level of ease that it brought to us. And it was like shocking, but we appreciated it so much, you know, and that's not something that you see very often, but it was just that moment that you realize like, oh, they do care. <laughs> I'm so glad you told that story, Sarah. That is really powerful. I mean, for me, I'm not going to forget that story as a leader. And I know people will be listening to it and it'll affect them. So thank you so much for that story. One last thing I wanted to just ask you about, and then I want to ask you if you have any other things, but just in terms of, you know, your colleagues and we, you know, and morale and we hear, you know, and this has been going on for a while, you know. And we hear about people second guessing whether they want to stay, you know, in, in healthcare. And so how is that going for you and, and your colleagues? I know that in all my years of nursing, I've never had this conversation so much as I have in the past year that people are wanting to leave mm-hmm. medicine, Nurses. nursing, bedside, EMTs, medics. You know, sometimes I've I've heard some of the doctors questioning sometimes their choices even. And it's just devastating sometimes where it's just like, I've never thought I'd get to this point in my career that I would question if I can do this anymore. And so many people are like, well, what other avenues can I do to kind of still stay in medicine, but not have to do what we're doing every day? And that's such a surprise to me because even I've known I wanted to be a nurse since I was a little girl. And even with myself, I'm like, why am I doing this some days? (laughs) And it was, I never thought I'd reach that point, but this year has gotten me to that point where it's, you're just wondering how much longer you can keep on dealing with this. It's definitely just difficult in general for all of us. And I think all of us have kind of thought about it, if not seriously, but just in the moment. So you've thought about it. And what are you doing? You're, you're still working. I am, yes. And, and how's that going? Some days are better than others. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, I mean, even this past week, I had a really difficult case where I got very emotional in the room because my the family member that was we actually had allowed in was having a very difficult time when we gave him some very bad news. And I had an amazing coworker who helped me so much that night, but she was one of the other nurses who's my friend. And she, there was this moment that it was so sad. And she said, I can't, I can't do this. And she walked out of the room and I, I got teary eyed and it ended up that I, along with my friend who's the social worker and then my charge nurse was able to help facilitate allowing a few of the family members into the emergency room to say goodbye. And my, my charge nurse that night is this, you know, this guy who's very tough exterior and he, you know, he's, he can be very, you know, he wants to follow the rules. So he was going to say no, but he, I think he kind of saw the look in my eyes, how hard it was for me on top of how hard it was for, you know, this son And he helped me so much with this. You know, we were able to let these family members say goodbye. And it was that moment, you know, our humanity becomes very real in some of these moments. And it's definitely 
it's one of those cases again that get you very emotional and Mm -hmm. you're just it's those moments that you realize that maybe you are here doing the work that you're supposed to be doing even when it's difficult Wow. I mean, first of all, I'm so impressed, you know, with your abilities and your strength and your strength, but also willingness to connect with others and reach out to others and, and your willingness to lean into those moments. You know, clearly you've given us a a number of examples and and there's so many people that are on the front lines doing that, leaning into those moments that most people would lean away from. So I'm really thankful that you are (laughs) still doing what you're doing. And I really hope people hear what you said, because, you know, we are picking that up, right, and across the country. And I don't want to necessarily say, especially with nurses, but I think those of us, you know, listening to this have to be aware that we have to be constantly doing everything we can do to make this better, you know, for people. So it's been really powerful for me to talk with you. Let me just ask you before we finish up, Sarah, there other things that you would want to uh, include or say here? I would just like to encourage all the healthcare workers who are listening to this not to give up and to know that you're not alone because it definitely feels like we're alone sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, find that support system, lean on your friends that you work with, wherever it is, you know, whatever department it is that you work in and definitely just remember that you're not alone. Wonderful. And for people listening right now, and if you're planning on going back to different parts of this talk with Sarah, I would encourage you to go to the two parts at at least. One is where she's really specific about what it felt like to reach that breaking point where she knew she had to release and do something. And that was really helpful. And the other is what she had to say about counseling and therapy. I I haven't heard it put any, I couldn't say it any better. So um, thank you again for spending the time with us, Sarah, and very glad you're doing what you're doing and good luck. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic with Dr. John Santopietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu. Film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, Please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 or text HELP to 741-741-2000.
if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512 7883.